last week's uh, teaching on Seudah HaMashiach, Messiah's meal, um, I want to do probably a few weeks, maybe a few weeks, on something I'm calling having God's personality. Um, I, I started to think about this a few years ago as I really wrestled with with personal things. You guys know I'm over-analytical, right? Analyze myself to death, analyze things to death, to my detriment sometimes. But this being in an environment, in a religious environment, in a church environment, if you want to say, where um, you're never good enough, you're never doing good enough, you're never, your heart is never right enough, uh, your thoughts are never right enough. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, being in those, being under those preachers and teachers, and not to say anything about their intentions, I'm sure they're great intentions, but under these ministries where um, where you're, you're just never good enough. It's that old thing we talk about, right? We were born in sin, and you're sinful, and that's just who it is. And and being the kind of person, the kind of wiring I have, um, I take that stuff seriously, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and so I want to make sure I'm right with God. And that's always been my real, my real heart's desire is just to be right with him and to be, you know, to be, to be good. Um, and so when you hear all your life is that, well, no, but you're not good. You're not good enough. You never will be. Your heart is always going to be rancid and your thoughts are always going to be against God and all that. But the Spirit came to give you God's character. Okay, so, so which one is it? Am I a rotten piece of, you know, junk? Or is the Holy Spirit supposed to be producing the character of God in me, right? And what is godly character? Well, it's holiness and well, it's this and well, it's that and all this other. It's all these, these things. And in, in the process of growing up as a young kid and the teenage and college years and the ministry and all that, I constantly analyze what is my character and what is the character of God, and are those two things matching? And if they're not, then I have to change me, right, in order to be more the character of God, or I have to allow Him to, to change me. And when I try to, when I say, okay, well, I'm gonna, this is something I can't get right, I'm going to allow God to change me, and I still don't change then is that God failing, or is it me failing, or what, you know, you know what I mean? And, and again, I know some of you might be thinking, it's, this is not that hard. Yeah, but to me it is, because it's important. It's important that we get these things right, and we understand what God is asking of us. What really is God asking of us? And so a few years ago, I, I, again, I'll kind of just plug and promote again, um, our friends Clint and Kiva Dunn up in... Uh, uh, South Cleelum, Washington, uh, have Anamkara Monastery where they do uh, character teaching there, and it's fantastic. It's the, I don't think there's anybody else in the Torah movement doing what they're doing, and it's the best. Um, and so about character, about integrity, and about patience, and about you know resourcefulness, and all these all these beautiful attributes we should have. But a few years ago, I took a little different turn on it, and instead of thinking about God's character. I began to think about God's personality. And it's something that I've never really 
heard taught or been taught before. About this idea that God has a personality. And what does it mean to have God's personality? And what does it mean to show God's personality? So this week, the Haftarah for Parsha Akrimot, the Haftarah was in Ezekiel. And um, I'll just be honest with you, Ezekiel is always kind of a book that scared me because it's weird. Well, it has some weird, you know, stuff in it. It's got some weird stuff, um, you know, really similar to the book of Revelation. It's got, it's apocalyptic. It's got some uh, prophetic and, you know, apocalyptic stuff in it. Um, but the more that I read through Ezekiel, this, this Torah portion cycle, do you know that Ezekiel... His whole family perished, from what I, if I have this right, his whole family perished in Jerusalem. And God did not allow Ezekiel to mourn his family until Jerusalem itself was destroyed. And when Jerusalem itself was destroyed, then Ezekiel was allowed to mourn his family. Ezekiel is that prophet that he has to actually act out all of the things that he's prophesying. He has to actually do them. And so this lesson about not being able to mourn is this idea that through Ezekiel, God wanted us to understand that the state of Jerusalem, whether it's up or down, finally, in its devastation in the time of Ezekiel, the, the fall of Jerusalem is to God like Ezekiel losing his own family. The, the death of your family, what that feels like to you is how J- the, the fall of Jerusalem feels to God. And for me, that's just an insight into God's personality, right? That God has a, we're fashioned after him in his image. And so these personalities we have to have come from somewhere. They come from him. So open up to Ezekiel 22. And it's only 22 verses. We're going to read through them, and I want to just begin the conversation about what it means to have God's personality. Today, we're mainly going to talk about what it looks like when we don't have it, and then we're going to rebuild from there. So Ezekiel 22, one of the less strange parts of Ezekiel, so that's helpful. Ezekiel 22, and we'll start in verse 1. The word of Hashem came to me saying, Now you, Ben-Adam. Now what does Ben-Adam mean? You have it probably in your translation. Son of man, right? What does that mean? Just means a human one, right? This is not an angel. This is not, this is a human, okay? You, human, will you rebuke? Will you rebuke the city of bloodshed and let her know all her abominations. Now, what city are we talking about? We're talking about Jerusalem. What's interesting is that there's another city in Scripture that's called the city of bloodshed. Does anybody, can anybody just guess, take a wild guess, what you think the city of bloodshed was? What other city? Anybody know? I'll give you a hint. Jonah. Nineveh. Nineveh is called the city of bloodshed. 
here's what's, oh, this is, I get so stupid excited about nerdy stuff like this. Nineveh is a city in what nation? Assyria. Nineveh is the city that Jonah was sent to, right? To preach Shuvah, repentance. Now, Nineveh is, is the capital of Assyria. It's the capital, make, which makes it even better. It's the capital of Assyria. Now, why is Assyria so important in this time of Ezekiel? Because Assyria is the one who took the northern tribes away into exile and eventually destroyed Jerusalem. So when Ezekiel mentions Jerusalem as a city of bloodshed, literally, what is he comparing Jerusalem to? Nineveh. You know the story of of Jonah, right? How he didn't want to go because Nineveh was just this awful, horrible place. And it's kind of this tragic comedy thing where Jonah's like, I'm not going. And then they end up repenting. Now, understand a little bit more now about why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because it's the capital of the empire that, that is ransacking your country. It's like somebody coming in, God forbid, to your house and killing your whole family. And then God saying, go to that person and tell them about my love. Go to that person's family and tell them about my love and my forgiveness. That's what God said. This invading nation, this this war machine of a nation that's going to eventually destroy Jerusalem... I want you to go, Jonah. I want you to preach re- repentance. And he was like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> so in the opening part of chapter 22, Ezekiel, Hashem through Ezekiel, comes out with guns blazing and says, are you going to call it what it is? Are you going to stand up before these people and call them by the name of their oppressors? Okay, here we go. Verse 3. And say, thus says my Lord Hashem Elohim, O city shedding blood in her midst to hasten her time and which fashioned faith within herself for contamination. There's a lot of stuff in here. Technical stuff we don't really have time to get into, but this shedding of blood. Verse 4, through your blood which you shed you became guilty and through your filth which you fashioned you became contaminated. Thus you brought your days near and reached the limit of your years. Therefore, I have made you a mockery to the nations and a conversation piece for all the lands. Now, my translation talked about creating filth. Your translations will say something about idols, right? And there's some translation stuff going on there and and different things. But this idea of shedding blood... It makes it sound like the city, like the streets are running with blood, that people are just running around murdering each other, right? People just, they're just vigilante killings all over the place, right? Somebody cuts in line at at the McDonald's in the time of Ezekiel, and they just get slashed down, right? Somebody runs you off the side of the road, you just kill them. Like, it's just bloodshed. But the, the rabbis, the sages through the years have wrestled with this and thought about what it really meant and 
it could simply mean that the judges were judging unjustly. And that, if I can find the note on here, because it was the way it said it was so good, um, it talks about this idea that um, to judge someone unrighteously or to gossip about someone or to slander someone is akin to murder. Hmm. Where have we heard that before? Anybody know? <laughs> yeah, our families, our families have half of the book, right? It's it's so interesting that in the sages of Judah, you know, those old filthy Jews that ruin everything for everybody and add to the word and create customs that are not biblical and all the other junk we hear leveled against them. In the in their own commentary, they're looking at Ezekiel and these sages and rabbis are saying, you know what? Maybe there was more murder than usual. And God forbid, in the city of Jerusalem, there should never be bloodshed. There should never be murder. There should never be violence in the city of Jerusalem. But there probably was. But it wasn't the type of violence and that blood was literally running through the streets. Or else it would be pretty soon you wouldn't have a population at all. So the sages took this to myth that it was slander and gossip and, and unrighteous judgment which is akin to murder. And I just think that's really fascinating. That how many years later, centuries later, our Messiah would come and say, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you that if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. See, the more we understand Yeshua's context, the more we realize he didn't make anything up. He is teaching and drawing on thousands of years of Jewish wisdom. And that's a really beautiful thing. He says in verse, uh, verse, yeah, four, through your blood which you shed, you became guilty, and through your filth which you fashioned, you became contaminated. Let's, we've got some folks that have never seen this, so this is important for me to kind of help us all understand again why this is so such a big deal. So, let's just say this circle represents the whole world, right? The whole earth. Now, the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? That's from the scriptures. Don't ask me where. But the whole earth is God's, right? Mountains, hills, creeping things, everything. The whole earth is God's. The center of the, of, the, of the earth, of the universe really, but the center of the earth is Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is the center. It's the holiest place on earth. And within Jerusalem, let's make this little white dot. Within Jerusalem is Har Habayat, or the Temple Mount, which is the literal holiest place on earth. Right now, there's a... A big golden pimple on top. Yeah, it's an atrocity. I'm not going to get off on that. But um, the Temple Mount, Har Habayat, is the holiest place on earth. Then Jerusalem, out from there, 
And then outside of Jerusalem, all of the walled cities of Israel, any of the walled and fortified cities of Israel are lesser holy. So the point is from Jerusalem, as you move out from Jerusalem in a circle, levels of holiness decrease, okay? The walled cities, then the rest of the cities in uh, in, in Israel, the land of Israel, and then finally we come out to this area, which is the nations, so what we have is we have this, these levels of holiness. We've talked about this before, right? But for those of you that have never heard this, I just want to catch you up. You have these levels of holiness. Well, how do we get this? Well, how do we know this is the case and where do we get this from? Well, we get it from an understanding of, oh, hi. Somebody left us a little note. We get this from an understanding of the tabernacle and the temple, right? The tabernacle where you have out here is the courtyard here is the holy uh the holy of uh most holy place this is the holy of holies right here the ark of the covenant Aaron kodesh sets only one person goes into there one time a year it's the holiest place right within the tabernacle one person the kohen gadol goes in once a year on yom kippur to manipulate the blood on the ark and that's the holiest place. Not everybody can go in here. Only the high priest. The high priest has more access and can be closer to the presence of God that one time a year. But his life is also more restricted because of that. Right? This idea comes from this thing about, in, you know, in our history... We, you know, well, I'm just, you know, into the presence of God. I'm just going to saunter, boldly go. And it's like, well, okay, pump the brakes there, Cletus. It's not, it doesn't quite work like that. The high priest and the priesthood in the temple teaches us that the closer you get to the divine presence, to the presence of God, the holier you have to be. The more restricted your life is. So, the, and when I say restricted, I don't mean he's captain of the fun police. I mean, there's certain things you can't do. For instance, the high priest cannot enter the home of a dead body, even if it's his own family. He can't. He's got to stay and work and serve in the temple. So he goes into here. Who goes into here? Any old Levite? Does any old Levite go into the holy place? Who goes into here? The Kohanim, who are Aaron's sons, or the high priest's sons, right? They are the only ones that go into here. Now, the high priest can go into here and here. The Kohanim go into here, but they can't go into here. They have more access than the person below them, but they're not, don't have as much access as the Kohen Gadol, but also they don't have quite as much restrictions on their lifestyle as the Kohen Gadol. You understand? And as you go out further from here, well, out here the Levites serve right here. They don't have as much access, but they don't have as much responsibility. Out here, right, the men of Israel the elders, etc., and then out here is the camp of Israel, and then outside of that is what we call the wilderness, right? If you think about Israel in the desert. So think about this picture of the tabernacle. Israel is in this wilderness. The wilderness is untamed. It's full of chaos. The wilderness is eat or be eaten. It's wild animals. It's predators. It's whatever. As a matter of fact, Many things in the Torah, God says, if you do this, you're going to be sent out of the camp. 
what did that basically mean? It basically meant certain death because you were going to be out there. So you have this chaotic wilderness. Then you come in from that wilderness, you're in the camp of Israel. Some safety, some security, the Torah reigns there, right? It's a, it's a safe place. You come in from the camp of Israel to the tabernacle. So you see the, the increasing levels of, of, we say, holiness or order, right? So when we think about this on a world level, on a world scale, this is where we get this idea of concentric circles and radial kedusha, right? This is what Ezekiel is addressing in Ezekiel 22, among other places. Jerusalem, you were supposed to be a light to the nations, right? But you've become like Nineveh. So that's just a little bit of context as to why we are where we are. So he says you became contaminated. Oh, this is the point I was going to make. I'm sorry. All that to make this point. In the tabernacle, oh, hit myself in the head. Where does the presence of God dwell in the tabernacle? Right here, right? Not here, not here, not here, not here, right here, okay? Now, this is hard for us as Christians because the way we understand God's presence is everywhere. He's in us, et cetera, et cetera, right? And this is not our fault. And this is not the Bible's fault. This is just the way it is. The presence of God in Hebrew called Shekinah or Shekinah, if you're from Pitkin, Shekinah is, is the manifest indwelling presence of God. Something that we all claim to have living in us. So much so that we've made it common and we've made it normal. The way we think about it, the way other people think about it, is like, oh, I got God's spirit. Really? Because in, in here, if, if somebody unauthorized came into contact with God's spirit, they just died, period. The, Isaiah, one of the, one of the, the righteous of the, of the Bible, gets shown in a vision that he's in the Holy of Holies. Not even in real life. He was not like transported. It's in a vision that he's shown and he's standing before Hashem and he freaks out. He loses his mind. Why does he so scared and why is he so, ah? Because he, he knows he's not supposed to be there. He knows what happens to somebody who steps into that place who is not authorized to. So, the idea in Ezekiel and through the prophets is that now that there's a temple in Jerusalem, the presence of God, Shekinah, dwells here on Har Habayat in Jerusalem, which makes it the holiest place on earth, right? Okay, I want to make sure everybody understands why, why, we are, why we are where we are. So when Ezekiel talks about it being contaminated, whether it's by actual murder and bloodshed or whether it's by gossip and slander, what happens when it becomes contaminated? What happens? God has to leave. He's, I'm up out of here later, and he goes. Other parts of the, the prophets tell us that God's presence left the nation of Israel in ten stages, which is part of what we started here. The Temple Mount, Jerusalem, 
the walls, the cities, blah, blah, blah. So God's presence has to go. He cannot be where there's contamination, right? That's the implication here in verse 4. He says, thus you brought your days near and reached the limit of your years. Therefore, I've made you a mockery to the nations and a conversation piece for all the lands. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Contaminated of name. Hmm. Great of confusion. I just want to sit here a little while because I think we have a lot to learn from this. Hey, Kyle, is there an eraser back there still that I throw it away? Nope. All right, never mind. There you go. So let's talk about this, this thing about being a, a, a mockery to the nations. Let's, let's understand what we're dealing with. Okay? Th- this is why this is important and why I want to spend a few weeks talking about this. When we describe Jerusalem, it's a holy place, right? It's where the presence of God lives. Jerusalem is a light to the nations. Jerusalem is literally a city on a hill. Not the tallest hill, but it's, but it's on a hill. As we describe Jerusalem from the prophets, what does that sound like? Anybody? What else is also called holy, filled with the Spirit, a city on a hill, a light to the nations? Us! Us! Look around and say, you! (laughs) That's us! So why this is so important and why I'm so excited to talk about this is because what Ezekiel is saying about Jerusalem, we need to make sure that it's not being able to be said about us. Now, understand me very clearly. I am not a replacement theologian. I do not believe that we, as the body of Messiah, have replaced Jerusalem in any way, shape, or form, or the Jewish people for that matter. But I do believe we have been added to the kingdom in order that the prophecies would be fulfilled that all of creation would know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We... In the New Testament are talked about like Jerusalem is talked about in the prophets. Both by Yeshua and by Paul and the whole band of misfits, right? I said it affectionately. Except for Paul. I don't like him very much. No, I'm joking. Um, (laughs) Hey, his writings are hard, right? All right. Yeah, thank you. All right, so the reason why this is so important is because the, the way Jerusalem is described is the way that we are described as the body of Messiah, So what Ezekiel is saying about Jerusalem, we need to ask ourselves, can the same thing be said about us? So, is the presence of God really living within us? Or are we so contaminated that he's he's had to say, look, I'm loving and I'm gracious and all that, but enough's enough. Because that's what happened to Jerusalem. And let me just make sure we understand If it can happen to Jerusalem, to the Jewish people, to the Israelite people, the chosen people, the apple of his eye, the people he brought out of Egypt with a strong arm and a mighty hand, if it can happen to them, please let us not be ignorant and arrogant enough to think it can happen to us. Please 
let us not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Yes, we have Yeshua, but Yeshua is not the stopgap for all of our contamination. That's right. Somebody's awake. That's what I'm talking about. This is why this is important. We have to be, we have to, when we read Ezekiel and this, especially chapter 22, we have to be thinking of us. We have to be thinking of us. So he says, I made you a mockery to the nations and a conversation piece for all the lands. Now, why are they a mockery? Why are they a mockery? They're a mockery because they claim this God, and yet their nation is full of corruption and violence and chaos. They claim this supernatural relationship with this supernatural God who did all these miracles for their forefathers, and yet their nation looks like a dung heap. Let me read this intro. I think this is brilliantly said. It says, The bitter denunciation of Jerusalem in this chapter is unparalleled in Scripture. Many are the passages in Tanakh which describe Jerusalem's degradation and bemoan its deafness to the call for greatness, but none approach the severity and unsparing uh, ex- explications which Yehezko poured out on it. Listen to this. The greatest falls occur from the greatest heights. Throughout the book, we have learned how Israel, when it loses touch with its soul, sinks to the depths undreamed of by Gentile nations. When, when Jerusalem, when the Jewish people lose connection with the Torah, with, the, with, the, the, with Hashem himself, they fall to levels significantly worse than any of the nations that surround them. Do you understand that? He goes on to say, the heights to which Jerusalem can aspire are evident in the names by which the prophets called the Jerusalem of the future, such such names as city of righteousness, faithful city, and the city of Hashem. This... This city is called the city of righteousness. So what does that mean? It means that everybody in it is, we're all righteous, and if you're not righteous, you can't be one of us? No. What it means is it's a community, a group of people with with a government, with a system, with a structure that is living by Torah law, that is treating each other well, but as also as an example to the rest of the world of how to do life and be, be the, the height of humanity is what Jerusalem is supposed to be teaching. There's nowhere else that you can learn righteousness, true righteousness from God in the world, except looking at Jerusalem. There's no righteousness to be found. There's no wisdom to be found except looking at Jerusalem. Well, what happens when Jerusalem looks worse than the rest of the nations? Right? If the holiest place on earth is no longer holy, what does that say about the affairs of the world in general? Yeah? He goes on to say, at the climax of the picture, we have a rebuilt and regenerated Jerusalem. And he says, do not read that Hashem is there, but Hashem is its name. All right. 
those of you that have been around a while, you know, you know the rant, but for those of you that don't, oh, that's not a hey, that's a, there we go. Forgive me, Kyle, for I have sinned. All right, what is this? This is the name of God. It's called the Tetragrammaton, Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh, okay? How do you pronounce it? Don't. How do you pronounce it? Every time one of us Hebrew roots Torah people see something about the name, probably not y'all, but a lot of people out there see something about a name, a huge debate ensues about how to pronounce the name. Yahweh, Yahovah, Yahuwah. Uh, I'm, missing so, I'm missing so many. There's, there's 300 different, 700 different, 800, whatever, different ways. The commentary to Ezekiel here says, we shouldn't think of Hashem as there, but that he actually calls the name of the city by his own name. This is what's important. We can't read that and think, when you're driving into Jerusalem, there's a big sign that says, Welcome to yod heh See, when we, when we minimize the conversation about Hashem's name to a pronunciation, we miss the whole boat. We miss the whole boat. As I said Wednesday night, I don't know Brother Ron has a daughter, lives in Texas. I don't know her, but you know what? I think she's freaking incredible. Why? Because she has his name. Well, she's married, so she doesn't technically have his name. But you know what she does have? His blood. What else? His character, his personality, his rearing, right? In, in some ways, in many ways, she's him. I don't know how she feels about that, Brother Ron, but no, I'm joking. See, I know, I know that man, and I know his name, but I know what his name represents. When someone says Ron Bloyd, I know I have a picture in my head of what that name represents, the man that name represents. And I don't know any of his other family or any of that, but I tell you what, I think nothing but the best of anybody who's connected with him, right? Because a name is not just a collection of letters. A name is a a personality, a character, a a, a reputation, as we say all the time. And I know in charismatic Christianity, we get hung up on the authority, the authority that's in the name. Well, don't us, don't we, we better not declare God's authority without considering God's reputation, We better not walk into somewhere and proclaim God's authority and have no thought as to how this makes God look. Whatever we're claiming to do. These letters are more than, this name is just more than a collection of of letters. He says, Jerusalem is called the name. What does that mean? Again, it doesn't just mean there's a sign that says, welcome to yod it means the city as a whole has the personality of God. 
The city of a, as a whole represents and exudes the personality of God. What is that personality? Well, you have to stick around for next week. We started getting into it. But the, the big picture is that there's a group of people that live together that look like God. There's a group of people in our, in our side of the book that look like God too, or are supposed to. They're called the body of Messiah. You see the parallels? When we pray the ironic blessing, it's not just putting a name on people, on, on our kids and on us. It's that the attributes of God should be infused with who we are, or we should be infused with what they are. So he says, oh, I lost my place, I'm sorry. He goes on to say, this, I love this statement. Not the city which God loves, right? That's what we all, we all want to be. I want to be the one God loves. That's great. God does love you. Move on. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ahead of time. So, Heather and I, we have different love languages. Any of... Any of you married folk have different love languages? Yes, we all do. All right. So, mine is words of affirmation. Tell me I'm great. <laughs> what I, the way I feel loved, if, I, if, you, if you want me to know you love me, tell me I'm great. That's, that sounds really arrogant. But what you don't know is in here, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm less than nothing. And that's the reality in here. So, I need to hear that in order to come to some kind of level. Like, okay, maybe you're not great, but at least you're not scum, right? That's the, that's the reality I live with. And those of us with that love language, that's usually the case, right? We have a poor self-image, insecure, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I won't go into all my baggage. But Heather's is quality time, right? I wish it were something like gifts or, you know, something like that. But it's quality time. And I have been guilty of feeling like she's needy from time to time, Okay? Is this too personal? No. Okay. <laughs> Apparently not, because here you go. I didn't ask her permission before I said this. Better to ask for forgiveness than, than permission. No. But she is not, she is not needy, which you understand. But have you ever been in a relationship where the, the other person just wants something all the time? Just like... Just tell me you love me. Just tell me. I love you. Tell me again. I love you. Tell me again. Sing it in songs. And it's like, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, high maintenance, okay, is a, is, a, is a high maintenance, needy, whatever. This is how some of the body of Messiah treats God. Just tell me, I just want to sit in daddy's lap and just let him love me. You're being needy, okay? God won't tell you, I'll tell you, all right? You're being needy. I don't know where that rant came from, excuse me. But he says, the, sit, the important thing about Jerusalem is it's not the city that God loves that's primary. He does love Jerusalem. He does love you. But that's not the primary thing that we focus on. He says, it's not the city... That God seeks. 
Some of us as Christians, we just want God to seek us. We just want to be pursued by God. Pursued by God. It's not the city primarily that God blesses. So many of us, we just want to be blessed. How are you? Oh, I'm blessed. <laughs> well, you were just beating your kids <laughs> just like in the back seat just like two minutes ago. Yeah, but I'm blessed. Shut up. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, all of these things are true. God does love Jerusalem. He does love us. He does seek after the well-being of Jerusalem, and he does seek after our well-being. He does bless Jerusalem, and he does bless us. The, but that's, those are not the principles. The principle that we should know is that Jerusalem is meant to be the one which Hashem's Shekinah, his indwelling presence, is fused in complete unison. It is one with the divine. Now, there's 12 guys that run around with this crazy man from Nazareth, right? And he says all kind of really hard and weird stuff. And most of them sit around most of the time they're together going, do you get it? I don't get it. I don't know what you're talking about. And before he leaves, he says, go to Jerusalem and pray, right? Because they're approaching Shavuot the anniversary of the giving of the Torah. And in Acts 2, the Spirit falls and they become filled with Ruach. What does that mean? It means they spoke in tongues. It's proved they were saved. Eh, wrong. Okay? Get your Pentecostal doctrine out of my Bible. Sorry. What does it mean? It means this. It means they were loved by God. They were pursued by the Messiah. They were blessed by Messiah. But at some point in Acts 2, they were waiting and they were praying and they were all together in one accord and the Spirit of God fell and filled them and they became infused with Shekinah, with the presence of God. Which means at that point, they were one with the divine, inseparable, you couldn't tell them apart. They were filled with the personality of God at that point. Just like Jerusalem in its height. That's exciting. All right, there's a lot more, but we won't take time. Let's, let's keep reading in Ezekiel. He said, I made you a mockery to the nations and a conversation piece for all the lands. Here's the thing. If you wear the name of God, which you all do, you all watching do, you wear God's name. You wear the name of Messiah as well. Then that means that whatever we do reflects on him. Remember the big word is reputation. It reflects on him. So let me ask this question. Is the what we know as the body of Messiah, is it a mockery to the nations? When people think about who they want to be around, who they need, who they want to call for help, who has the solutions to the world's problems, who, who, you know, who, in, who exhibits love and compassion and, and healing and restoration, when they think about all those things, do they think, I know, I'll run to the church? No, the answer sadly is no, and I'm not happy about that. It's sad. It's tragically sad that that's not what they think about because we have made the name of our God a mockery. 
It's not that people are laughing at the inhabitants of Jerusalem and mocking them. And, and actually, this, the, when it talks about mocking, mocking's right. But there, this also can be thought of as the nations will curse themselves by you. So what that means is that um, if I want to really, really, really um, put you down, Mark, I'm going to call you a Jew. That's the worst curse you could ever speak to somebody. In, in, the, in the Muslim world, it is. To call someone a Jew is like, it's like the F word. It's, you say it, people around go. <gasps> so it's not just that, that people are going to make fun of, of, the Jew, of Jerusalem and the inhabitants. It's not just they're going to mock them. That's kind of a general word. They're actually so hated and so despised that when people in other nations want to, want to talk bad about each other, they're going to call them by your name. That's not the worst part. The worst part is that you represent your God. So what do they think about your God? Do people, whenever we talk to people that are hurting, that maybe didn't grow up religiously or, or, or whatever, you see Billy, uh, not Billy Graham, um, what's his son's name, whatever, Graham, um, on TV, or you see Dr. Whoever, so-and-so, whatever, on TV, on these commercials and stuff, and they're, they're talking about the love of Jesus Christ. Is that, a, is that what the world understands? Or have they been so hurt by church people and so they've seen hypocrisy, they've seen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's all the church, but you know what? Jerusalem was set up to be the highest. And you can, when you're set up to be that, you can either be the greatest or you're worse than the worst. There is no in-between. There is no gray area. That's not Joe saying that. That's rabbinic sages, thousands of years saying that. Look at our Jerusalem. It was meant to be the, the city on the hill, the lights of the nations. When it refuses to do that, it doesn't just, it's not just an average city. It becomes depraved. City of blood, worse than Nineveh. My point is, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to really like just, you know, take a, you know, a, a, a bat to the church and just beat it all to death. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if we are supposed to be likened to Jerusalem, the body of Messiah, then we had better make sure that there is no hypocrisy, that there is no slander, that there is no gossip, that there is no room for any of that. Because as the body of Messiah, our job is to be the city on the hill. It's to be this. And either we're going to be that or we're going to be worse than anybody else. Does that make sense? Don't think about when we're reading Ezekiel, think about Jerusalem going like, man, that sucks to be them. No, you are them. Or you're supposed to be them. That's the plan. Does that mean we all have to be perfect? That's not the point. Don't take it to those extremes. But what I'm saying is that we have let too much run loose in the church, in the body, in the kingdom. And we've let child molesters get away. And we've let sexual predators get away and we've let abusive husbands and wives get away and we've let abusive parents get away and we've let people talk and gossip and be filled with all kind of evil nasty junk and we've said oh we'll bless their hearts we don't have the privilege of just being average people 
We don't have the privilege of just sitting back and coasting through life. If that's what you want, reject Messiah and then go about your business. Because Yeshua said, which is something we don't teach, before you come to me, count the cost. Well, what's the cost? Well, we're so worried about racking up numbers and getting people saved, we don't take time to teach people, wait, you're thinking about becoming saved? You're thinking about receiving and accepting Yeshua, proclaiming as your Lord and Savior. Before you do that, would you, let's take this six-week class about the cost. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but our numbers would look really terrible after that. Yeah, but would the kingdom be stronger? And I'm not to, not to you know, minimize people to numbers, of course, but I think also if people understood the cost you would have as many people in the kingdom. But there would be people who now, if, even if they knew they couldn't measure up, they would know what the goal is. They would know what we're fighting for. They would know that now when you cross over from death to life, from sin to, to, to Yeshua, now you're a citizen of a new kingdom. And being saved and having Yeshua as your Lord and Savior is not the end where now you just get to prop your feet up and go, thank goodness I'm going to heaven. No, it's the beginning of a new citizenship where now you begin to learn what it means to live legally in the kingdom of heaven. But see, we don't teach that. You want to get saved? Let's run up to the altar. Pray this prayer after me. Let's go get dunked. Change your clothes. Now you're good. Hallelujah. Go about your way. And, and, no, and, and you're like, okay, good. And, and God does change people like that. Don't get me wrong. I heard a test, uh, testimony this week of somebody that says, when I prayed and gave God my life, I was changed in that instant. I'm like, hallelujah. But what about after that? Is there discipleship? Is there teaching? Is there, is there a growth that still happens after that? Counting the cost. One of the costs is you're going to put on this name. Now, everything you do reflects on the God of creation. Uh, are you ready to bear that burden? <laughs> we don't talk about that. We, don't, we just talk about what we can get what we get from salvation, what we get from Messiah. When you go for a job interview, you understand innately that when you get hired and you put on that, that uniform or that name badge or whatever, now all of a sudden, you can't act like you want to all the time. As a waiter, which is one of the, uh, in the service industry, was one of the hardest jobs probably there is, you can't just cuss out whenever a customer is just being belligerent. Because you're wearing that name tag. You're wearing that shirt with that logo. You represent that company. And whatever you do is a reflection on the company. It's like that in every area of our lives for some reason except when Christians get to their relationship with God. And then all of a sudden that's not the way it works. Yes, it is the way it works. And my question is, as the city on the hill, are we we a, a, a conversation piece among the nations? Do people think we're foolish and do people think we're, 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 we're hateful? Do people think we're judgmental? All of the answers are yes, by the way. Listen to people talk about the church, about Christianity, about Christians. Judgmental, hateful. I, I mean, just, it goes on and on and on. Now, there's a difference in being despised for righteousness sake, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being despised because we haven't lived up to the calling of Messiah. That's a whole different thing. There should be, we should be despised for righteousness sake. We should be despised because we love too much. 
We should be despised because we're too accepting. We should be despised because we're too giving. We should be despised because we take the side of the underdog against power. We should be despised because of that. Not because we're exclusive. Not because of those other reasons. I'll make you a mockery. Those near and far, verse 5, will mock you. Contaminated of name. Great of confusion, my God. We all left the church and thought, oh, it's just a bunch of confusion. Forty-something thousand denominations. Nobody knows the truth. And we walked into this Torah lifestyle. (laughs) And we said, thank God we're not them. And man, all we've walked into is confusion and just people fighting over their name and the calendar and the this and the that and the what. uh, Ah! Stop it. I said it before service been wrong. I believe, I've, I've heard my life, in my life growing up in church, all my life I've heard people say the, la- the end days revival, the end time revival, the la- revival in the last days, there's going to be a revival in the last days. I, within my bones, as much as I believe anything, I believe that a call back to the Torah is the end day revival that we've all been waiting for. We set up church tents, we scheduled revivals, I don't know how that works, but we, we, we've done all this revivaling all these years, I believe this is the revival, but it doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like. It's not jumping pews and falling in the ground and whatever, it's not that. It's people humbly and quietly coming back to a deep and, and humble obedience to Messiah and to the Torah. That's the revival, turning people's hearts in humility towards the Messiah and towards obedience. The old ways, right, the ancient paths. But we're full of confusion. And we're contaminated of name. In one way, in identity, because we still don't know who we are. We still don't know who we are. We're not Christians, we're not Jews, who cares? We don't, well, we don't know who we are. We don't, what I mean, what I don't mean, I don't mean it as a label. I don't mean we don't know what to label ourselves. I mean, we don't, but that's the, the least of our worries. I mean, we don't know who we are because we don't always know to stand up for the right things. That makes sense. We find it too easy to compromise in, in too many ways. That's what I mean by we don't know who we are. Because somebody that knows who they are, they know their values, they know their callings, they know their responsibilities, they know their their empowerments and what they're given, they know those lines and they don't cross them. Someone who is really, really fit and healthy and works out and, and is a model of human fitness, they don't go on a dessert binge for a week. They don't they don't drink beer for a weekend all, you know, they don't, there's certain things they don't do. Why? Because they know who they are. They're committed to their health. They're committed to their fitness. And they just don't cross those lines. Because they, it's not, it's, it, they know who they are. But how easy it for, is it for us to lie or to gossip or to be jealous or to be bitter or to be, those things should be almost impossible for us if we really knew who we were. So when I talk about identity crisis, I'm not talking about, what do we call ourselves? 
I don't know and I don't care. I'm talking about do we know who we are enough to not cross those lines of God's character and diminish his reputation? Contaminated in name and great of confusion. Verse 6, he says, Behold, the princes of Israel, every man for his own power, they within you and for the sake of bloodshed. Father and mother have slighted within you. Toward the stranger they have acted oppressively. Okay, so we started out, God is, is blasting the city because they, they're making idols, right? Contaminated with filth. They're making idols. That's a thing between you and God. That's your worship. Now, this is not preaching to the choir. It kind of is. But just take it as an encouragement. In Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel covers the greatest commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. How do we know that? Well, he mentions idolatry. Idolatry is about worship. It's about your personal worship. But idolatry also, it's not that you're bowing down to a little statue and combing its hair and bringing it food. That's, that's one part of it. But also with that idolatry comes a whole system. There's a, there's a whole lifestyle, a whole system, a whole culture that comes along with idol worship. Oh, if you're going to go to the temple and worship this idol, then come back and eat with us later. And then all kind of lewd talk and all kind of lasciviousness and all kind of different stuff happens because it's a different culture. Worship defines the culture. So it's not the statue only that God has a problem with. It's all the things that are attached to that, the lifestyle that's attached to that. Just like I know if I go to a Baptist church on the right Sunday, it's probably going to be dinner on the grounds. That's just, everybody's bringing a covered dish. That's just part of the culture. The culture here is you come, you're going to eat. That's part of our culture. In idol worship, there's a culture as well in pagan worship. That's between us and God, that personal part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul. We say it every Shabbat. And hopefully you say it every day as part of the Shema Behafta. Let me just say this. I'm not your police. I don't want to be. I don't have the energy or the time. I'm not your police. But every single one of you, and every single one of you, God has asked you to live a certain way. He's called you to a certain, he's convicted you of certain things. He's, he's, he's called you to do, if God has introduced you to the Torah, let me just say, I'm not going to police you and call you and ask you if you're doing it. Let me just say, if God has opened your eyes to the Torah, for your own good, you better be pursuing it. Does that mean you do everything right and your tzitzit are right and your whatever and all that? No, it doesn't mean that. It means you better be pursuing it, whatever that looks like. If God revealed to you that the Shabbat is still the day of worship and that it is supposed to be holy and set apart and different and you're treating it like any other day, I'm not going to police you. Get it right. Get your head right. Get it straightened out. Now, again, not my business, not my circus, not my monkeys, but kind of my circus and my monkeys because I'm your pastor. I want the best for you. Whatever God has called you to live out, you better live it out. You better take it as seriously as the breath you breathe and live it out humbly but with fervor and passion, 
period. That's not between me and you. That's not, I'm not going to judge how you're living your lifestyle with God. I don't, I don't have any business in that. I'll celebrate it with you, and I'll walk with you, and I'll encourage you, and I'll do whatever. But you know what? You have to do that for you and God. Whatever God has revealed to you, you better live it at all costs because that's where everything stems from. But number two, now in Ezekiel 22, we're getting into dealing with other people. And as we've talked about in the last couple weeks, we have focused on our relationship with God great. What we haven't focused on so much is how God sees our relationships with others. He says, toward the stranger, this is verse 7, they acted oppressively in your midst. Orphan and widow, they wronged within you. Verse 8, my sanctities you spurned. Here you go. That's that vertical relation again. Are you spurning God's sanctities? The things that God has convicted you of, the things that God has delivered you from, the things that God has has asked you to, to be holy in, are you spurning those things? And I don't mean you're always in outright rebellion, but are some things like, eh, I could, I could slide. God's merciful. It's all good. My sanctities you spurn, my Sabbaths you desecrated. Verse 9, tailbearers were among you for the sake of bloodshed. Upon the mountains they ate among you. What happens on mountaintops? What happens on mountains? That's where the gods live there. That's where you meet with the gods. That's where heaven and earth meet, right? So what is Israel doing? They're eating together with other people on the mountaintops. Not the mountaintop of Jerusalem. The other mountaintops, this is pagan worship, all the different practices that go in with it, the contamination. Evil plans that they made in your list, verse 10. Verse 10 here, we, we start talking about the things that are the antithesis, the opposite of holiness. You can find these in Leviticus 19 and 20, I believe. Uh, next week's Parsha, Kedoshim. The father's nakedness they uncovered within you. Women in impurity they afflicted, a man against his neighbor's wife, and a man would defile his daughter-in-law with lewdness, a man would afflict his sister, brother's daughter, or his father's daughter within you. Now, do I believe that anybody in this room is guilty of any of these things? Not for a second. Baruch Hashem. Passages like this, we all ought to look at and praise God that we've been delivered because Many of us, maybe all of this, would maybe be guilty of one of these things if it were not for the saving love and mercy of God. It's a time that we can celebrate and say, that's not me. Oh, there's something else that is me, but it's not that. (laughs) Bribery they took for the sake of bloodshed. Interest. Now, here's something that's really, really interesting. Interest and increase have you taken and enriched your friends with loot, but me you have forgotten. It's called usury, right? Someone poor comes and needs money. Instead of just giving them money, which you know they're probably never pay back, you give them money and you say, no, you're going to pay it back with interest, an oppressive interest. God ranks that in the same place as he does sleeping with with your stepmother. 
So you know what? None of us may be guilty of any of these sexual abominations, but there's other things that God says in here that he ranks as high as those just to go like, oh, you thought you were going to get off scot-free? No, no, not quite. Oh, you've been slandering? You've been talking? You've been gossiping? You've been lying about stuff, bearing false witness? Oh, well, that's just as bad as one of the other things we mentioned. So nobody, nobody gets away, right? Look at next week, read Kedoshim, read, the, read the, the, the Parsha, and you'll see these things. The word of my Lord Elohim, Hashem Elohim, or we're going to finish up in the last few minutes. Now behold, I have pounded my hand because of your robbery which you committed. Some of your translations may say something like clap my hands. It's, 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 which is a sign of what? Frustration. So as a parent, every, have you ever, things are going wild and you just, enough, stop it. You have it? Sorry, maybe it's just me. <laughs> Somebody be honest with me. Say amen. <laughs> as, a, as a parent, when your kids, your household is in chaos, you just, you get to a place where you just want it to stop. You just want peace. I just want peace and quiet. And sometimes that comes through just sheer frustration. And at this point, remember we talked about God wanting to show what, how he mourned over Jerusalem by Ezekiel not being able to mourn over his family? This is that God showing that really fatherly, almost human side of, 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 of himself in that, that he just gets so frustrated, he slams his hands down on the table and says, Enough! I've pounded my hand because of the robbery which you committed and because of the bloodshed which was in your midst. And then I love this question he asked. Can your courage endure and your hands be strong in the days I shall deal with you? <laughs> it's such a cool phrase, such a cool question. In other words, you guys are so rebellious. You're so arrogant in your rebellion. You're so, who can, nobody can touch me. I'll just do what I want. Oh, really? You're going to keep that same attitude when I drop the hammer on you? Right? Are you going to still be as puffed up and sure of yourself and rebellious when stuff gets really, really bad? No. What's going to happen? When stuff starts to get really bad, you're going to come crying back home to mama, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. You wanted to be grown and gone. Now things are hard. You can't pay your bills. You can't put gas in your vehicle. Now you want to come back? No. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm replaying a conversation I had with my father when I was about 17. Oh, no. I literally told my dad one time, I stood up in his face and I said, oh yeah, maybe I want to make my own mistakes. (laughs) To which he politely obliged. And then a couple months later when I said, "Uh, I don't have anything to eat, he said, and? (laughs) Figure it out. No, oh, no, 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 wait. Can Can your courage hold? Can your courage endure and your hands be strong? As strong and as courageous as you're rebelling against God, whenever the consequences start to come, are you going to be that strong and that courageous? I love it. I just, I just think it's so cheeky of God. He says, I, Hashem, have spoken and done. Then I shall scatter you among the nations and disperse you among the lands and make an end of your contamination from you. 
So what's, what's to understand is that if you read in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 28, you have all the blessings and cursings, right? If you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll curse you. The curses are significantly longer, and it gets really, really bad, really bad. But the thing to contextualize about Deuteronomy 28 and the curses is that God says, okay, we're in the land. You're not doing what I want you to do, all right? The curses happen, but Israel's still in the land. The curses are happening. God's bringing consequences. Curses are allowed to be happen. He's hoping that they'll change because he wants them in the land. That's why he delivered them to be a society that was a model for the rest of the world. Okay, I'm going to, nope, nope, okay, more curse. And the curses get really bad, y'all. If you hadn't read Deuteronomy 28, give it a shot. But be ready because you're going to be depressed at the end. It gets really bad. But it's all while they're in the land. The worst and the last consequence is what? Y'all should know this. Exile. The worst of the consequences in the land, as bad and gory and as it gets, are not the worst that God has for Israel. The worst is get out. How do we understand that? How many of you, don't raise your hands. (laughs) How many of you ever dealt with a rebellious kid? As a parent, or maybe you were one, okay, all right. As a parent, when your kid starts to be rebellious, is your knee-jerk reaction to go, all right, you're out. You didn't clean your room like I told you to. Get out. Pack your stuff. Get out. No. Not a good parent. If you're a crappy parent, maybe, then you should work on your parenting skills. But what do you do when you're dealing with a rebellious kid? Wednesday night we had the discussion. We had a couple people speak up and said they had been through this situation. It was so heart-wrenching but so beautiful as well. As a parent... You're dealing with your kids and their trouble and whatever. What do you, the last thing you want to do is kick them out. That's the last resort. What you want to do is you want them in the house where you can work with them and where you can be there for them and you can try to teach them and you can correct them and pick them up and walk alongside them. The last thing you want is to, is to kick them out. But sometimes that's the last resort. The last resort is, okay, I can't, I can't anymore. It's not good for you. It's not good for us. You have to go. And that's how God treats exile, kicking you out of the house. And then he says, this is another fascinating. He says, and he'll disperse them throughout the lands, that's exile, and make an end of their contamination from them. So Israel is supposed to be a land that's pure. The nations are unpure, unholy, contaminated. But God says, I'm going to send you into the nations the impure places in order to purify you. What does that mean? What is that teaching us? Well, we all want to be forgiven by a wink and a nod and a little wave of God's magic forgiveness wand. Bing, you're forgiven. Feel better. But we know what this teaches me? The way atonement comes many times is through consequences. It's through consequences. Because what is God's goal? Or what is, what is our goal? Is our goal to be forgiven for what we did wrong or to, to be changed and not want to do it again? Right? What really is our goal? When we ask for forgiveness, is our, when, we, when we do something wrong and we feel bad about it, or maybe we just get caught, and we ask for forgiveness, is our goal just to be soothed in our conscience and it wiped off of our ledger? Or is our, our goal in forgiveness 
to be atoned for and to be, to, for that contamination to be removed from us for us not to want to do it again. Right? What, what God is saying through Ezekiel is, I'm going to send you into the nations and you're going to suffer. And through that suffering, I'm going to turn your heart back towards me. Your hands are not going to be able to stand. Your courage is not going to be able to stand like it is in your rebellion. You're going to come crying home to daddy. And in that time, I'm going to purify your hearts. The consequences will actually make atonement for you. Isn't that awesome? You are going to see the atonement happening, and you are going to be able to be a partner in it as long as you yield to the consequences and you repent. You yield to the consequences and you repent then I'm going to make it to where you never want to be like that ever again. And that is true shuvah. That is true repentance. So as we, as we kind of wrap up, some main things I want to just remind us of. This week, I want you to remember, this is you. I know this looks like a cell with amoeba or, or whatever. It looks like a biological illustration. But that's you, city on a hill. The place where Shekinah dwells, that's us. The world does not know righteousness unless we show them. The world does not know holiness unless we show them. Not just us in this room, Baruch Hashem. The kingdom. The world does not know God unless we show them. This is us. The city on a hill. The city called by the name of Hashem. Just let that marinate and let that weigh on you a little bit. The second point I want to just remind you of as we wrap up is we are not only called by the name of God, the body of of, of Messiah, the kingdom of heaven, all those different names were called. We are loved by God. We are pursued by God and we are blessed by God. But the main thing that we should be is we should be fused with God. Inseparable and indistinguishable from God's personality. So I know these are heavy things, but they're good things, and, and I hope that you'll think about them as we continue to talk about this uh, over the next couple of weeks.